Father, your son is called the Prince of Peace. Outside of him, there is no peace. There may be temporary times of (laughs) non-disruptions. But for man, there is no true peace outside of Jesus. So we thank you that even in this time of our life, when no matter what season we're in, no matter what hectic things are going on or stressful things, we can find peace from the Prince of Peace. Thank you for the knowledge of the Scriptures to control our thoughts and our minds of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have to make up a Jesus. He's right there in the text. And When we ponder Him, when we meditate on Him, we have peace. And so we thank you for that. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that we're no longer at war with you, Father. And so we thank you for this Prince of Peace that we celebrate this time of year and focus a little more on his incarnation. Because without it, Lord, we all die in our sins. And so we thank you for moments of peace that we can escape into. But Lord, help us find our identity in that peace in Jesus Christ daily. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. I wanted tonight just give you an introduction to that. I won't get back to Deuteronomy until the first of the year. We'll start teaching on um, the advent and the incarnation of Christ starting this Sunday and then throughout the end of the year and, uh, and then return on Wednesday nights to Deuteronomy. I'm very excited about this book. I've been reading and studying and uh, just uh, tonight is just a sermon just to let you get the idea and the flavor of it and get you thinking about the book of Deuteronomy. I have been longing to teach it um, since uh, probably Exodus. <laughs> Leviticus and Numbers are a little challenging. We had a great time. We saw Christ in so many different ways there, but I've been longing for this. This is um, the great mediator Moses. This is the end of his life. This is his sermons. There's so many wonderful things about that that I'll touch on tonight to kind of whet your appetite for the book of Deuteronomy, and, and I think you'll be greatly encouraged. But I just want to look at the first five verses just to kind of give you an understanding of how the preamble to the book opens up. We'll look more at those next time we come together when we get a chance to look at Deuteronomy. Um, but follow along as we just read these first five books. These are the words which Moses, first five verses, the, which Moses spoke to all of Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Sufa, between Param, uh, Trophel, Laban, and Hazareth, and Dizabah. In the eleventh day journey from Horeb by Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, in the fourteenth year of the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to, to give them. And after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbron, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashroth, and Edir, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying. And that's what the rest of the book goes, and we will explore that uh, chapter by chapter um, as we go through. But 
I, I want to first spend a little bit of time introduction-wise and just the importance of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, keep your finger there and turn to Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus' baptism, you remember that in the, as he came out of that water and there identified as the Son of God, such a tremendous uh, statement by the Father and uh, he was immediately driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. The, the language, uh, particularly the, the Greek language, is very strong in several different accounts there. Um, it, it, the idea is the Spirit drove him in there. That was the goal of the Spirit, to push him into the wilderness. That was probably, most likely, most theologians believe, he was in the Judea hill country. Um, that would have been settled years and years before prior to that by the tribe of Judah. There in the wilderness, he was there for 40 days. You remember that? 40 seems to be a, a, a time for the, for the Israelites and even Jesus, 40 days there, nation of Israel, 40 years and so forth. We see those terms used quite often. But there he was tempted by Satan. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 said he was with the wild beast. I, I don't even know what that means. I mean, what is he doing out there? He's with the wild beast. The Bible just says that. I thought that's fascinating. And then these, at this all done, these ministering angels come to him. But three times, you remember there, the great enemy of man's soul, the devil himself, comes there to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tried his best to get him to act independently of the Father. That was his goal. Not to trust the Father, to take it into his own hands, get him to sin in such a way. And in each godless temptation, Jesus fought off the tempter with what? The scriptures. Now I want you to look at this and see what scriptures he actually uses. Read with me uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, quite the timing there, isn't it? How do you do with hungry with a four hours? <laughs> if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. Let's follow a little farther. Then the devil took him to, into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to them, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning, and, concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's certainly quoting Psalms 91 there, using it poorly. But Jesus says to him, on the, hand, the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test, Deuteronomy 6.16. Ooh, a bit of a pattern going on here, isn't there? Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high place on the mountain, very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 10.20. All three passages come from the book of Deuteronomy that our Lord quotes. 
the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So Jesus fights off Satan with scriptures, but all three of these come from the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus knew the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> now, he would know all of the book, right? He's God. But it is quite striking that he goes to that. And it is great encouragement to me as I recalled that and thought about that and said, wow, he, he returns to that. In fact, throughout his ministry, there are many, many quotes and allusions to the book of Deuteronomy as he takes on personal tax, as he deals with theological disputes. He often turns to it. The apostles picked this up. They used the book of Deuteronomy as they most likely watched their master use it, and they quote or allude to the book of Deuteronomy at least 200 times. It is a very, very used book in the New Testament. Now, if our Savior, our Lord and Savior, refers to that, and the apostles did, I think we should. We should study books like this as a New Testament church. Well, in it is a lot of Moses' sermons, and they're recorded in this, what we call the book of Deuteronomy, this fifth book of the Pentateuch. And these came after four decades, I mean, think about what we're about ready to study, four decades of wandering with the nation of Israel, four decades including the release from captivity in Egypt, uh, uh, four decades of going to, to the mountain of God and, and going to Kadesh Barnea and watching the rejection of God, then circling through the wilderness for 40 years, is 40 years of this man ready to tell you what he believes and how God is leading him to instruct you. They are full of tremendous wisdom and they reflect the graciousness of God in his covenant with Israel. Deuteronomy functions like a theological declaration or sermonic is a word a lot of people use about it. It's a call to Israel to respond to the grace of God with unreserved loyalty. He, it is, if you like the term lordship, which a lot of us Reformed people do, we talk about the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the book on lordship in the Old Testament. It's all or nothing now. Your parents didn't do it and they died are you in? And this is what he's doing. He's really calling people to the obedience of God's word. There is much to learn here, particularly the grace and love of God in this book. Uh, one of the commentaries that I'm reading, I have a stack of five or six that I'm reading through. Most of the men have passed away that I'm reading. But one book is titled The Gospel of Love. Did you know that that's a, a, a theme of Deuteronomy. This is the love of God coming out as he moves, the Spirit moves Moses to write it. Certainly there are ceremonial laws that we'll see in there, but most of those, if not all of them, are fulfilled in Christ. They're no longer under that. We are no longer under that in the new covenant. Um, but these principles that are taught throughout the book of Deuteronomy help us in this present day battle of how to honor and be loyal to the Lord deals with everything from marriage to children raising to dealing with sin to aligning your priorities properly with God and what his purposes are and then it certainly teaches the pursuit of pure worship so we'll learn a lot from this book so let me go through a couple of thoughts here on your notes one the authorship of the book of Deuteronomy well certainly the Holy Spirit is the 
the divine supernatural author. We know that, right? But the human author in which the Spirit is moving is Moses. And the very first book, book of, the very first verse of the book lays claim to that. As we make our, oops, I'm not back there. Make your way back there. You see in that very first verse that I read, I'll be there in a second. These are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. And so the very first, book, very first verse of the book tells us that Moses has this discord that he's about ready to give this divine inspiration that God is laying on his heart. There's repeated references throughout the book, um, uh, throughout Deuteronomy, that both point to Moses as the speaker and the writer. Let me just, just read some to you as, as you're sitting there listening. Deuteronomy 31.9, So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priest. So at the end of the book, the Bible says Moses wrote this and he gave it. Here you go. This is it. This is what the nation will turn to for many, many generations. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until it was completed. So certainly the book of the law contains Deuteronomy, right? It's the book of the law, the five books of Pentateuch. And certainly Deuteronomy is the capstone, the last one of those books. Now, many passages throughout the Old Testament affirm that Moses was the author. Joshua, as he just begins his ministry in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, he tells the nation of Israel, Moses is now dead. Joshua now has the helm. He says, be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do all, of, all according to all of the law which Moses my servant commands you. There, of course, the, the, um, the angel of the Lord is reminding him of those things. Do all what Moses wrote. It's connected with the law of God. And so we have constant reminders that David, when he was handing the baton over to his son Solomon with instructions of building the temple, he said in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, Keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses. Isn't that interesting? doesn't say the law of God. We find that often in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. So there is little doubt that it is Moses that wrote it. Prophet after prophet refers to the law of Moses as they urge the nation to be obedient all the way up to the last prophets um, before things go silent for about 400 years. As you move in the New Testament, um, the New Testament validates Moses as the writer so often. Jesus, um, in his declaration on marriage and gender in Matthew chapter 19, he's being um, confronted by the religious leaders, and they say to him in verse 7, they say, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's paraphrased out of verse 1 through 4. But in verse 8, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted it. So there in that very, boy, very intense confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus again goes back to Deuteronomy, points out, they try to use Moses against Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, no, Moses did it because your hearts are hard. So we see that over and over. The religious leaders, though, affirmed Moses' uh, authorship of it as well. Mark chapter 12, um, some of the Sadducees, verse 18 and 19. These are men who opposed the Lord Jesus. 
Um, there were people who didn't, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They came to Jesus, verse 18 says, and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife and leaves no children, his brother should marry the wife and, be ra- and raise up children in, uh, to his brother. That's Deuteronomy 25, 5. So they're there referring to Moses. They said, Moses wrote. Moses wrote this. Peter, in his second great sermon, the first one was Pentecost, the next day or so, he's at the portico, there's a lame guy there, um, he wants to be healed, they say, well, you know, he wants money, actually, and they don't have money, he said, but here's what we can do, and he preaches this phenomenal sermon, and in the middle of that, Peter says, Moses said, in the middle of that great sermon where thousands of people come to know the Lord, in that second sermon, he said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18, what a great, oh, I can't wait to get to that text. It's, it's so pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul defended his right to have a living made from the preaching of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, Apostle Paul says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is thrusting, Deuteronomy 25, 4. The writer of Hebrews affirms Moses as the author. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took blood of the calves and, of course, he, spit, he, he took it and spread it upon him. So there, even the writer of Hebrews uh, affirms him. But my personal favorite, which I love dearly, is Luke chapter 24. You remember, Jesus resurrects from the dead. He's resurrected from the dead. He's walking. He's on the Emmaus Road. He's got a couple of disciples with him. He's acting kind of like he doesn't understand what's going on. He's just, he just does that to entreat things out of people. And they're going, where have you been? Uh, all these great events are happening. And they, they go through all of that. And finally, Jesus pipes up and says, O foolish men, slow to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. So there he he takes the Pentateuch. I think that's what he's probably speaking of. Um, The Pentateuch and says, with the Pentateuch and all of the prophetic sayings of the Old Testament, that had to take place, points to the clarity that Moses was the author of those early books. Now, of course, there are critics. You can't believe some of these critics, what they come up with. I picked out one just because you just got to hear this. Uh, Late 1800s, critics began to rise. Um, What happened in our world was a group of anti-supernaturalists arose. And they began to say, well, the Bible has all the supernatural stuff in there, but we can explain it all. I don't know if you remember, not too long ago, Discovery Channel used to have the mysteries of the Bible, and you could watch, and then you think, oh, they really, well, it wasn't deep at the Red Sea, it's just only this deep, and a big wind came up, and you're all going, well, how does he drown trained soldiers? But, you know, they try to, they try to always do that, but it, you have to be very careful of that. Those people do not believe in the supernatural work of God. And, and when you track the people who don't believe that, they always doubt the authenticity of authors and timings of scriptures and, uh, of course, a lot of the events. Well, in the 1800s, a group arose, and they got some traction for quite some time. And what they said was during uh, Josiah's time of spiritual reform, which, man, if you love, if you love studying the kings of Israel, Josiah is one of your favorite because the young boy just steps up, doesn't he? And, but they rob him of really what happened there. And there he says that he was young and these religious rulers came up and their Pentateuch really wasn't written by Moses, 
but they needed somebody with some strength behind it. So they pieced together a bunch of religious material um, that they called the Pentateuch, and they said it was by Moses to give strength to help the nation change. That's how, that, that flew for a very, very long time till true theologians came out and said that's false and that's a lie. So there's always people that debunk this, and you wouldn't believe how many people don't believe that Moses wrote it. But if you know your Bible and you believe it's literal, you, as I showed you all the way through the Bible, Moses is credited to the writing of the Pentateuch, particularly here, Deuteronomy. And, and listen, these are all very liberal theologians that hold to this, and they just reject the supernatural work of God. And they're still in our liberal seminaries. I mean, you really have to check where people are trained anymore today. Um, because this is what's taught. Two, number two, the original intent, uh, intended audience of the book of Deuteronomy. What's interesting about the word Deuteronomy, um, particularly from the Greek Septuagint, uh, there we get this phrase from the Greek called what we would say second law. We translate it second law. And, and better, probably even more accurate, is second giving of the law. So, so not a second law, but second giving of the law is the idea there. And so we find in Numbers 14, you remember this, the first generation, they've come from Mount Sinai, they've heard God, they said, look, we're going to do everything he says. They march their way there, they pick out the 12 spies, they send them into the land, oh, it's all looking good. Until they come back and say, the sons of Anakim are in there. It's bad. We're like grasshoppers. They, produ- they produce fear within people. They reject God's word. They rebel against God. And off to the wilderness they go. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. We've, we've studied that through n- the book of Numbers. And, and Numbers is such an amazing book. This, this, Deuteronomy, happens within months. Numbers you know, happens all over that 40 years, right? So Deuteronomy is quickly, but here Numbers is reminding us that they wandered there, and in Deuteronomy now what Moses is going to do, he's going to address the children of all those who died. So it's really fun to kind of think about this. Those of us that have grown children, it's a letter written to our children when we're dead. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an incredible second reading of the law to them. Everybody else has died off. And so Deuteronomy carries this idea of second giving of the law. But this time, God um, is really using Moses to make sure that the law transcends down to the next generation. And so we have some great reminders. It wasn't just, just to hear it. He wanted to transcend. Look at chapter 6. We, I think all of you know this passage. Look at chapter 6. I just want to read this. We'll look forward to preaching this when we get here. But notice, and this is where this is coming from in my heart, I want you to hear how important it was to God to get to this next nation, this next generation of the nation here. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today, today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You should bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. 
Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, you eat uh, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now, just stop right there before I finish this chapter. Notice he is telling the ones who really physically did not come out of the nation of Israel um, because they were born in the wilderness, most likely, um, uh, well, pos- no, yeah, yeah, some of them would have come out of there, but, but not all of them would have understood it. You have a whole, probably a whole generation born in that wandering time of 40 years, right? So here now, he's trying to say, listen, you've got to get this into the next generation. But always he tells this generation, and f- all the way through the Old Testament, you can find this over and over, do not forget I brought you out of slavery, he says that term, if, if, you just, um, if, you, if you have a Bible program or something, just put in Egypt. 90% of the, maybe not that much, but very close to the references when you put in Egypt are connected to how many times God's word says, I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you out of Egypt. He does not want this next generation to, remind, to forget that they were brought out of slavery. Now, if you can't make the connection to our own bringing out of slavery... Um, this is our Lord. He does not change, right? He brings people out of slavery. That's what he does. This nation is this great example of God's ability to save on a grand stage with millions of people that he brings out. But, it, but it's very easy to look down and say, oh, that's me that he brought out, in a sense. So he, he'll never forget that. Let's go on, verse 14. You shall, uh, you shall not father, uh, follow other gods, any gods of the peoples who surround you. This is just, this is tremendous sermon that he's preaching here. For the Lord your God is in the midst of you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put your Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and the statutes which has commanded you, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give his fathers, by driving out your enemies before you as the Lord has spoken. When your sons ask in the time coming, saying, what do these testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which the Lord God commanded you? Then you will say to your sons, this is so important, we were slaves to the Pharaoh of Egypt, to sin, to to pagans. I mean, just think about what all that entails. We can see ourselves in this in a sense, can't we? And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders about our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out of there in order to bring us in, to give us a land which he has sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all the statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be, righteous, it, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he has commanded. Isn't that an amazing sermon, right? That's just one. 
and I'll get into this as I close out, but there's, there's three sets of sermons throughout Deuteronomy. And, and they're passionate, and they kind of run together, and then there's a break, and then he, t- and he goes on and preaches a bunch more, and then there's another break, and then he preaches a bunch more, and then he concludes with a lot of other information. So you'll hear a lot of these great sermons. Number three, the dating of the writing of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, the liberals try to debate this, but the Bible is so clear on stuff. Is it? When, when you actually believe God, you can find his answers in the word of God. First Kings chapter 1, you, know, you don't have to turn this, but write it down. First Kings chapter 6, excuse me, First Kings chapter 6 is just a, when you study historically dates and times in the Old Testament, First Kings chapter 6, so many people come back to. And the reason why is because the building of the temple, Solomon's temple, got written down worldwide. And they still find it in all kinds of places. All, everywhere they do digs, they find that that was done somewhere uh, probably between the year uh, 967 and 966 A.D. So keep that number in your mind. Let me read this to you. Chapter 6 of 1 Kings, verse 1. Now it came about in the 480 year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. Remember, I just keeps telling you that he brought them out of it. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, that's pretty detailed, isn't it? I mean, that's a very good calendar. And from there, we can really understand um, time frame. And so this, this passage and several others in Kings help people figure out how to go, go, how to go towards, um, uh, towards the coming of Christ and how to go back and figure out when things happen. It wasn't long after they put out, um, I can't remember who the actor was of the Ten Commandments. Who is he? Charles Aston, all that stuff. They had the wrong pharaohs. They had all kinds of wrong stuff. And Christians started going, what is he talking about? And they started going back and they could really easily figure out who the pharaohs were. Now, so again, there's great importance on this verse. And it's not hard for us to start to put things together, right? We know that Moses was 40 years in Egypt, right? Taken out of the, the bassinet, floating in the Nile. He was 40 years um, there getting the best education the world could offer. He had the highest minds, the greatest training. God put him in a pagan world to train him so that he could take care of this nation. So he's there for 40 years. Then he goes out because he kills a guy, runs out in the wilderness. He's there for 40 years, right? He's running around that place. Um, taking care of his father-in-law, future father-in-law's sheep. And then he's 40 years leading the nation of Israel. So he's 120 years old when he's writing this, and he's, his life's broken up into 40 years. Now, according to 1 Kings, it establishes this well-known fact that 9, 967, 966 A.D., on Solomon's fourth year of ruling in Israel, he begins to build the temple. So that date places, and then, the, and of course, the verse tells us 480 years after the sons of Israel came out of Egypt. So we just work our way back, and that gets us to 446. Now minus the 40 years, and guess what you get to? 446. We actually know when this took place in 1406 B.C. Because of the Bible. And there's just little doubt of it. And, and you can read anybody on this. In fact, when we were over in Egypt um, last year, we got to do a little bit of touring around. And in fact, one of the neatest places we were at is we, Gina and I, stood in the temple and the training area where Moses was trained. It was 
quite astonishing to stand there and they, I mean, because of what's on the walls and the timing of this, because we were with Christian tour guide who was walking us through this type of timeline. This is actually where I got this from that guy uh, as I I looked at this. Um, And standing where he was standing in the same place, on the same stones. It was pretty fascinating to think that God was training him there in order to take him to the wilderness and then to take him to lead the nation of Israel. And so uh, here we find out exactly when this happens. And so when you go back to the, the analogs of Egypt, it's not hard to see what king, what pharaoh was ruling when the nation was in slavery um, and so forth. Now, four, themes and central truths in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm trying to move a little quickly here because you know, it's a large book and there's a lot of detail here. So when we get into themes, uh, number four, themes and central truths of the book of Deuteronomy, there's quite a few things that try to help us understand what's going on. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 28, if you'll remember this as I was there, that's the, that's the chapter where Aaron dies. His, his sister dies at the beginning of the chapter. He dies at the end of it. I don't know if you remember that. And so the Bible says in verse 28, after Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, do you remember this? Remember working through this, how sobering that was? You know, taking his hat off, taking everything off him. Oh my goodness. Um, after he stripped the garments and put them on El, his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountain. And then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. So Numbers chapter 20, 28 tells us that Aaron dies. Now, verse 33, if you remember, I said that this is a little bit of a history chapter of kind of what was going on. Verse 33, verse 38, as the history chapter, verse 33 says, Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. Now listen to this. In the 40th year after the sons of Israel, excuse me, in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. So, Numbers, um, they've, they've, they, when you get to 33, it's saying they've already been through the 40 years of wandering. Now they're in the fifth month of that. As we read at the first part of um, Deuteronomy, um, verse one, verse chapter 1, verse 3, it said there that it was the 40th year, the first day of the 11th month. So what are we now? What is it, 8 months? So three months now later, now we're, now the nation of Israel is across the river. They're, they're gathered there. They've already wiped out the Amorites and Moabites and so forth. They're gathered there. They're about ready to go in. And Moses is going to give this last great dissertation to them in this sermonic way as he challenges them before he dies. So what I'm trying to get to you, if you really love studying the scriptures, you go, you can find right where this is at. You can get down to the dates of what's happening here. And when you watch shows on TV, when they try to do it, you go, oh, no, I'm not even close. You get your Bible out because your Bible teaches you things. Now, so this helps us understand. I think what it did for me is I said, wow, there's such a close connection between numbers. Numbers ends as it just flows, and it's, it's the staging for Deuteronomy in these last sermons, last preparation for the second generation in the second giving of the law. I hope that helps you. Now, Joshua, think about all that's ready as, this, as Deuteronomy is getting, getting ready to be preached here. Joshua has been appointed. Men have been raised up in every tribe to be leaders of their tribal families. Um, they're sitting on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. There is a, 
uh, just a clear pointing as Numbers ends and Deuteronomy begins of this extraordinary importance of the people of God. They, the, the world is really kind of centered around what God's about ready to do. Everything is there now looking at this people that are staged on this riverbank. And this comes after this long time of discipline, right? Forty years of discipline in the wilderness. And now they're standing there a second time, right? A second time. Many of these these children weren't around the first time. They're there now looking across the river at what God is about to give them. And so this divinely chosen mediator, Moses, he, he is set to prepare them for this departure. He's, he's going to give them this final charge, this final instructions of God. Full of, it's just full of God's grace and mercy to them, but it's full of warnings as well. And I'll tell you, the more I read it, the more I go, man, I see God's grace and I see his warnings. And if you don't believe that warnings are not gracious, then you haven't grown up yet. Warnings are extremely gracious. And we begin to understand just how gracious God is as he gives these. Now, think about this. After 120 years of life, Moses doubtlessly has a great respect for what God has done. He, he of all people, has seen the wickedness of this nation. And yet he knows God loves these people. I, I think it must affect him greatly. I, 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 the Moses that we see throughout there, we have snippets of him. He's always interceding. He's frustrated at times with the nation. But this Moses, as we look in Deuteronomy, is this father figure. He's giving fatherly wisdom. He's, he's seen what they haven't seen, right? All their parents are dead. Their grandparents are dead. He, they haven't seen what he has seen. He's, he, he himself was rescued out of a certain death in Egypt for killing a guard. He's trained in the greatest schools that ever existed at that time. He's met with God on holy ground in the wilderness. He has received this incredible holy calling by God to go lead his people. He's actually, think about what God did through him. He was, he was the agent or tool of God working through him to do these mighty deeds. Stretch out your rod over the Nile. And God did it. Throw it down, make it a snake, pick it back up, and it's raw. I mean, he's this agent. And here he is after 120 years, now ready to mediate the kindness and grace of God to an undeserving nation after they've wandered all these years. I thought about him deeply as I wrote this today, finishing it up today. I thought, he outlived everybody. He outlived the entire nation, didn't he? And now he stands before them with his final words. This is the final words of God. I think it's very gracious of God. He permitted him to look into the promised land. You remember he was taken up to the top of Mount Abram. And there he viewed with his physical eyes. He saw where his people were going. And 
And I can't help but think through the lens of the Spirit of God, he could, God allowed him to see the future of God's people in that land. He could see the future. But it was more than just seeing that physically. I think what he sees, and I think what comes out as we study this, is he sees the temptations that the, that the people are going to come against. So he writes on that. He sees the dangers that they're going to come against. He sees their struggles with marriage and children bearing and raising. So he writes on that. As he looks into that land, he sees the destructiveness of the sin. So he writes on that. He preaches on that. Because he loves these people. And he wants them to obey God and be loyal to him. See, I think Moses knew that safety and prosperity would depend whether they would be faithful and unwavering in their obedience to God or would they turn like their parents? The more I read it, it seems like he has a, a good understanding of their strong desire to rebel. He, he knows that's in them. I think he knew it was in himself. He, he knows their strong desire towards the paganism of the nation. He watched them get involved with the Midianites and, and some of the terrible, sin, sinful, immoral acts that were going on. People had to die because of that. He knows that tendency to do that. And yet when you read, when, when you read, as, as we study this, you'll, you'll see the book of Deuteronomy. He, he's, he's sad at times, it seems, because he's concerned and even prophesies that they'll fall away. And yet he impels them to, to live according to the graciousness of God. God graciously brought your families out of Egypt. He graciously split seas. He graciously fed you from manna from heaven. He goes down through that to remind them of the graciousness of God, even though... I think he understands their ability to reject God. I, I think he loved this next generation. And he wanted them to grasp the, the graciousness of God. In the inspired sermon sections that we'll study through here, you, won't, you can't help but read them and feel like you're in the presence of a dying father. You just, the more I read them, the more I go like, wow, this is the dad I've always wanted. A dad that loved his kids and all the way to the end. And as he's dying, in a sense, because he's going to die when he gets done with this in a matter of just weeks and months, as Deuteronomy is a short time frame, he's going to die. And so he's gathered his children around him. One, one last encouragement, one last warning, one last exhortation. It, it's beautiful. It's the Lord... On the night before his death. Remember Moses is a great type, right? He's not sinless like Christ, but he's a type. And he points towards Christ in so many ways, who himself was faithful to his own. He led and instructed them, but he cherished them like a mother cherishes children. So we see Moses cherishing this young nation. Times he has to discipline them, but he also disciples them. He wants them to grasp the great rewards of the promised land. And so this fatherly figure is seen within this book. Another theme that runs clearly through the book of Deuteronomy is the reminder. And I've said this once already, but the reminder of Egypt and wilderness. And, and as I was reading through that, I thought, well, this is just like Paul. Paul. Paul never forgets where he was from. We once were dead in our sins. See, Paul won't forget the greatness of God to bring him out of the deadness of the life he was in. Moses does the same thing countless times. 
do not forget he brought you out of slavery. He reaccounts that over and over. And Moses, um, he doesn't focus so much on the disobedience as you study it, but it's around the gracious character of God. And that's why so many of the great theologians that you read on this keep pointing out that Moses is highlighting the grace and character and love of God. He uses those lessons, though, to motivate them. So in the first few chapters, we're going to see where he rehearses what went on. But he's using that to motivate them. He's using the history to keep them going. I think Pauline, the Pauline epistles do the same thing. All of these lessons were necessary to build faith. Right? That was the problem with their parents, right? Right there. They're on the border. It's right there. Faithlessness killed them. And that's what he's trying to build. He wants them to be faithful. He wants them to have their faith in God alone, not in themselves, not let fear take them from the enemies that they're going to see, right? The Anakim's um, descendants are there, right? They're still there. They didn't just say, oh, after 40 years, we're not going to be there. No, they're still there. And we'll see in Joshua, battle after battle, they've got to take on all those guys. But will they have faith? And this is what Moses is after. So one of the themes that we see in this book is this great faith-building practice that Moses is doing. And I trust as I teach through this that my faith will grow and your faith will grow as well. Again, Deuteronomy carries a strong uh, call to total allegiance to God. There is no partial following God. I think Deuteronomy is a lordship book. The children of God are instructed to come with their whole hearts. Your parents were half in and they died. If you come with a whole heart, God will deliver. Deuteronomy is a deeply pastoral book. It's, it's, many pastors have found great uh, relief and care for their own souls, and their churches have as well. But it's profoundly theological. There's deep teachings on the person and character of God as we'll go through it. But it's intensely personal. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, verses 4, 45 and following. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, his, all his dissertation is done, all his sermonic teaching is done, he says to them, after he's done with all, he says to them, the verse 46 says, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today. So pastoral, isn't it? Which you shall command your sons to observe carefully. Get this into the next generation. Just don't give it to them and, and, and give them weak Sunday school material. <laughs> Carefully tell your children this. Boy, I love that about our children's ministry here. Men and women down the hall, they're working hard with your children. Teaching them, you should be doing that. That's your job. We only come alongside that. But, but that's what you to see this pastoral instruction which you shall command your sons to do carefully, even all the words of this law. Then listen to verse 47. I love this. For it is not an idle word for you. What does he mean by that? An idle word is something that just you lose quickly. It has no motion to it. It has no go to it. It has no value to it. Do not let this be an idle word to you. And we know in generations to come in the nation of Israel, they couldn't even find the law. Josiah's people find the book of the law and begin to read it. They'd lost it. it. Became idle to them. And so Moses says, do not let this be an idle word. Indeed, now listen to this. Indeed, it is 
your life. That's how powerful the Word of God is looked at when there's only five books written in, in when we have an entire Bible. This is your life, Israel. The Word of God is your life. Don't handle it idly. He finishes by saying, And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So as we study Deuteronomy, we will engage in rich theology. Moses will declare and describe God's wondrous virtues. You're going to see the character of God on display. You'll come face to face with his omnipotence, but then you'll see his individual care of a very fleshly group of people, very frail group of people. You'll see him care for them. and You'll come away knowing that God is gracious to his children even when they don't deserve it. But he is a God who expects and requires his people to give total and unqualified devotion to himself. It's what we call lordship. He is either Lord of your life or he's not. See, our God is immutable. We don't have lordship in the New Testament that's not in the Old Testament. He is Lord. And in Deuteronomy, out of all of the Pentateuch books, do we see this declaration of the lordship of God. And he demands their full attention. The book will also remind us that they live in a very hostile world. Can you imagine what they're going into? I mean, they're, they're going to go take land after land of people who hate their God. They are completely polytheistic. They have tons of gods, stone and wood and unseen gods. They have all these things that they cut themselves and bow down before them and, and sacrifice babies to. They're going into the midst of that, and he's going to warn them, you are a monotheistic nation. You have one Lord God. You are dedicated to him. And you're going into a nation that hates me, hates my principles, and you better cling to me. Does that sound like pretty good counsel today? See, this is what this book does for us. This is why the word of God, no matter what book we go into, we, it's God's word and it becomes the living word and cuts deeply into our lives. I think... Deuteronomy reminds the nation that they're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're going to be this monotheistic, worshiping group, and they're not going to like it. And so there's a lot of warnings of not taking on the nation's gods, to repel those. I think today's world, and it's no absolutes, is postmodern, but then if you, don't, if you don't agree with what we agree with, then we're going to persecute you. We have no absolutes, but we, we believe this. But if you don't agree with it, we're going to persecute you. <laughs> I, I, think, I think this book really helps us walk through these very difficult times. But I guess I came away and I said, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will have no rivals. And he makes that clear throughout this. Last one, just real quick, the organization of the final book. We saw the first five verses um, it's referred to the preamble. It's the setting, right? It's, it's defining the words of De- Deuteronomy as, as from Israel's king, the, uh, Yahweh. There is no king at this time. Yahweh is their king. And, 
and, and he's, he's the one that uh, they are to follow. You'll notice in verse 3, according to all of the, all that the Lord has commanded to give them. The Lord is their giver of the truth, and he is their king. And so it's all conveyed through Moses, the mediator, establishes where they're at, what time this is, the, the month after they've come out of Egypt. It's so detailed to kind of give you the setting. Then the next section runs from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 4. And this is the first set of sermons, and, and it uses the historical facts of things that happened, how God was so gracious when they, they were so unwilling to follow and it's going to rehearse so many wonderful events. But, but I promise you, as you study it through with me, you'll say, wow, God is gracious, God is gracious, God is gracious. The third section is chapter 5 through 11. This is the second set of sermons that is rehearsing the law to this new generation. But it's helping them understand their relationship between themselves and Yahweh. How, how that produces worship. It, it's, in, a, in a sense, it's a second reading, but it's a deeper reading in a lot of ways. Um, as he develops this deep into their, tries to develop it into their heart. The fourth section is chapter 12 through 26. Um, this third set of sermons sums up both the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, a lot of laws that are rehearsed in there, but how they live out, how they're going to live out these things for the glory of God and for fulfillment that he has for them really is the focus on those. And then fifth, 27 through 28, that's the great blessing and cursings. Um, that come with obedience or rejection. And so you remember this when he has them stand on the hillsides and they, re- you know, they read the law and, they, and we believe this, we'll follow this, and they make these great declarations that they're going to obey God. And then 6 is 29 through 32. I've just kind of broken it up this way to help me study it. Um, this is a witnesses to the covenant. This is the final words of Moses, Joshua's commissioning, and then Moses' final song. It's absolutely beautiful. The last, really, things he does is songs and then the blessing in verse 33 and 34 of the tribes, and then his death, and then Joshua becomes the leader. So there's an introduction to Deuteronomy. I hope it's uh, maybe caused you to want to read it and, uh, and study it with me, and I will do my best to, st- to study and prepare, and hopefully we can apply many things to our lives. Amen? Father, thank you for our time in the Word today as we uh, just scratched and sniffed a little bit of this uh, large last book in the Pentateuch. Lord, we already see how gracious and kind you are to the nation of Israel, and certainly those in this room who know you as our Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that graciousness. And yet we ourselves, when we look at Israel, can see ourselves, our stubborn, hard-hearted, our fleshliness, our desires for the things of the pagan worlds at time. And yet there you are, rooting us on, showing us the great blessings that come with your lordship in our life. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, Deuteronomy will really challenge us this, this next coming months as we study it after the first of the year, and we would be devoted at least whoever comes, whatever this is, there's a group of people within Riverbend Church that are truly devoted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to the lordship of our Yahweh God, and will help us live daily for you. So, Lord, we ask that you bless this time as we study together, Lord. Lord, give these folks a good rest tonight, safe travels home, Lord, and bring us back together soon, Lord. We do pray for your return. 
We know that you promised you're going to come. And so we pray that you would come soon. I do finally, I pray for those who are going through difficulties, Lord. Some are in the hospital as we speak, Lord. Some are suffering greatly. Lord, we ask that you would be kind and provide grace to them, Lord, in this time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.